Hello and welcome to the Word with Web podcast. I'm Eric and I'm here with Pastor Richard Webb. Hello there. In this show, we get a chance to hear from Pastor Richard on a variety of biblical topics, and so I'm excited to do that today. Uh, in the show today, we're going to be discussing the Trinity. Oh man, the Trinity! The Trinity's cool. It's very cool. It's also very confusing. So I have a feeling that we're going to be uh, we're, we're going to be trying to keep this in the uh, normal hour length because we could probably go on all day. But oh yeah. Um, so I feel like this is a good place to pick up on after our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, last episode, if you listened to that one, was on creation. Um, and we talked about in Genesis one twenty eight where it says, let us, and yeah. how the original audience would have heard that and understood that. Um, you added some new things to it for me that it's it also was the, you know, the lower G gods, the spiritual mm-hmm. beings um, mm-hmm. in kind of God's uh, court, I guess, yeah, that, that he yeah. was speaking to about what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was um, part of it. But also, I think the the normal teaching that I've always heard is that it's the very first uh, indication of the Trinity. That's what a lot of people thought. In fact, um, there's some very major theologians uh, in the early part of the 20th century who speculated that that was a bit of a revealing of the Trinity. Uh, but I think subsequent um, study and research has revealed it has more to do with God gathering his angels around and just getting all excited. Yeah. Um, so if we just start off today in the Old mm-hmm. Testament, um, you know, Judaism was mm-hmm. is. Um, I think uniquely monotheistic, mm-hmm. right? And in in the ancient world, they had they had one God, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, how would they have, or would they have understood the Trinity? And where is it? Can we can we get any of the Trinity, the 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 doctrine of the Trinity? Mm-hmm from the Old Testament, and where does that begin? Oh, this is fascinating. Um, The technical term for how Jews looked at God is what they call covenantal monotheism, as opposed to radical monotheism. How about that? Big words already. Um, radical Radical monotheism means there is only one spiritual being, and that is God, and there are no other spiritual beings. Um, That's usually found in deism, uh, which is where God created the world and walked away to do something else, and it's up to us to take care of it. Um, But even Christianity is covenantal monotheism, or another term is modified monotheism. Wow, more big words. What that means is it is not a rejection of other spiritual beings. It's that we worship one in particular. So that's why both Judaism and Christianity have angels and demons, because technically those are little g gods. We would say from our perspective that some of those little g-gods like to be big g-gods. And so, for example, the uh, the pantheon of Rome, from our perspective, would be a bunch of little g-gods pretending to be big g-gods. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in one of his epistles. And so, the Jews would have been aware of Baal and Marduk and Ishtar and Ra and on and on and on and on, but... Th- Yahweh was the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Yahweh was the one who came to Abraham and Sarah and and said, have I got a deal for you? Follow me and I will give you a land. I will make you a great nation. And through your nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so that way, um, Judaism would not disallow for other spiritual beings, but would say, we only worship one. And then they would say, and the one that we worship created all the others. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And again, obviously, if you were a Babylonian, you might be a little offended by that. Um, because, wait a second, no, we've got all these deities we worship, and, we, and, and, and as Jews, they'd say, that's great. Uh, you're confusing all these little G-gods for a big G-god, and we worship the big G-god. So it's almost like they, they're monotheistic in that there's one god that's greater than all the others. It's almost, mm-hmm. it's not saying... There's not those these spiritual beings that right. exist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, they they can say there's one God because He's greater than all the others. Yep. in that sense, and He's also the Creator of all the others. Uh, and the reason why it's called covenantal monotheism is because the God that Israel worships is the God who has done business with them hmm. and made a covenant with them. So He has said, "You will be my people; I will be your God." So if we're if we're Going back to kind of the, the Trinity mm-hmm. yeah. part of God, right? The, mm-hmm. the characteristic, I guess, is a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, would there have been any of these other um, little G gods in the the surrounding nations that have any sort of place to understand a Trinitarian God versus you know a, a you know an individual? Mm-hmm. Um, more simplistic, yeah. I guess, is the word. So, how would they have understood? Mm-hmm. It, I assume, maybe rightly or wrongly, that a Trinitarian God would be unique in those other mm-hmm. religions. But would the ancient Jews have even put God in that as having that characteristic as as being Trinity? Um, no, um, you know, when I say that, it's kind of a yes and no thing. Okay. They would not have had a formal concept of a three in oneness. That we have to wait until Christianity happens for that. But um, there is sort of what I would call the thought foundations or the thought categories that are already in the stories of the Old Testament. Um, so we have already been talking about, um, I want to call them buckets. Um, and one of the buckets is creator, covenant maker, and father and shepherd. That's bucket number one. And that would be the one who made the covenant with Moses, um, also, and, and, and also made the covenant clearly with Abraham and Sarah. That's the big covenant. Uh, the Moses covenant sort of is under that. Um, it, it's the one uh, that they would call Yahweh, um, Lord. Um, and then there's two other categories in the way God shows up. Um, God's spirit, and that's very clear. They'll talk about the spirit of God here and there. Um, and um, so we'll hear about Yahweh, the Lord, or Elohim, the God above all gods, and that's all in bucket number one. And then God's spirit is bucket number two. Um, and then there's a bucket number three that is often God's word, and they believe wherever God's word was, there was God. So that God's word was more than just, you know, um, vibrations in the atmosphere or something written down or something heard, that his real presence went with his word. And this was actually true how they understood conversation in general with humans is, so our conversation, Eric, that we're having now, Jews would literally believe that um, we are exchanging our real presence with each other because my presence goes with my word and likewise yours with yours. So it would make perfect sense that God's presence would go with his word. Um, then the other is wisdom, and this is a little bit of a fuzzy category, um, and wisdom 
is personified as 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 as, as a a being and very closely related to God. A bit fuzzy how in the Proverbs, wisdom is there at creation. Wisdom is the way that God created all things, um, and so those two words come together to form bucket number three. Wisdom in words. So if you're keeping score, bucket number one, creator, covenant maker, father, shepherd. Bucket number two, spirit. Bucket number three, wisdom and word. Got to add one more thing that's going to reinforce bucket number three. And that would be the concept of the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is is best explained in stories. It's very difficult to explain from a concept standpoint. It just starts making, it sounds contradictory. Where Hagar, for example, uh, Sarah insists that Hagar and her child be driven into the desert to die, basically to dehydrate and starve to death. And um, God, the angel shows up and says, don't be afraid, and then gives uh, Hagar a, a, a blessing. Uh, and then uh, and you're like, hmm, that angel's got a lot of juice to be giving away blessings. And then at the very end of the story, Hagar names the place um, the God who sees me, and at the end it discovers that God is there. So that we start the story with the angel of the Lord, and we end the story with God. This happens with Jacob, where Jacob is wrestling someone, uh, you know, another man or an angel, and by the end of the story, it turns out he's wrestling with God. Moses, we're told that the angel of the Lord is in the burning bush, and the next thing you know, he's talking to God. So these stories seem to indicate this sort of fuzziness where someone called the angel of the Lord, that's almost like a proper title. It's not just any old angel. That when the, quote, angel of the Lord shows up, we're dealing with an angel and we're dealing with God. So to put it in in, in conceptual form, the angel of the Lord seems to be distinct from God and at the same time God himself. And again, the stories make better sense of it than trying to explain it. But this gives them, uh, the Hebrew culture, the category that there could be someone who relates to God and is God. And, and that goes, as we'll see in bucket number three, because that's one of the major categories that the first Jesus followers used to make sense of some of Jesus' very strange statements. So a couple things you said, going back a little bit further, where you, you talked about, about the word being God's presence. Mm-hmm. Just a little offhanded comment that yeah. I was, I was mm-hmm. thinking was, that kind of makes the beginning of John make even a little more sense yeah. because he says mm-hmm. in the beginning was the word. He he's talking about God's presence in mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. in in the beginning of his gospel. But then onto the angel of the Lord stuff. Mm-hmm. I think with when I read the angel of the Lord, I get kind of confused because it mm-hmm. does seem like God, but it also we have this understanding of what an angel is, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. being a messenger. Yeah. Is there something in the title, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the the title? I struggle with mm-hmm. with with understanding that as being God because it it's an it's it it appears to be a messenger of the Lord, a messenger of God. Is mm-hmm, is the mm-hmm, title right? Mm-hmm. So why is that making sense? Like why why would why why the complexity and why is it so? Mm-hmm. Um, does it come across different for us in modern times than it would have? back then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We moderns, especially we Westerners, who want to pin everything down to a single meaning, yeah, for us, it's just contradictory. It's incoherent. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. Right. Now, I think, though, there is a way through, and you just said it, it, an angel is God's messenger who bears God's word. 
So, if the angel's job is to speak for God and God's real presence is in God's word, then you already have a hint of who you're looking at in the very word angel. Now, mm-hmm. it's still a bit of a riddle, and I, I do think, again, um, the, the Hebrew writers love to, to, to be more meditative. They're not just trotting out a bunch of neutral facts like a newspaper. So, I think anytime you come across a story about the angel of the Lord, you're being asked to ponder. In other words, what's, what's going on here is fuzzy. You know, um, Jacob starts wrestling a man. That's what it says. And he ends up wrestling God, you know. Um, you know, we see that again. It very clearly says the angel of the Lord was in the burning bush. And God called out to Moses. And you're like, oh, well, which is it? Yeah. Yes. So, there's a set of, uh, there's sort of this, this tension that's deliberately set up for the reader to ponder, okay, somehow, you know, th- this is a thought category for making sense of God in the Hebrew tradition. Hmm. So, <laughs> I'm just trying, trying to make sense of this. I'm probably going to do this a lot in this episode. But um, in college football, there's there's a team, Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the alums like to, you know, the former players like to say they're from the Ohio State University mm-hmm. as opposed to what other one, right? Yeah. And they're almost using the as being like indicating it as being superior better to any other Mm -hmm. is that something that's happening in the angel of the lord like this is it's delivering god's message just like Mm -hmm. an angel would Mm -hmm. but this is this is the the actual one who had who has the message well i i definitely think the minute you put the in front of it you are separating it from all other angels all other Mm -hmm. messengers Mm mm-hmm so this is this is a unique divine messenger yeah. who turns out to be God Himself. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think you're onto something. Uh, but again, that I would bundle the angel of the Lord into bucket number three. So together with word and wisdom, I'd put angel of the Lord in there as is a handy tool for making sense of word and wisdom. Okay. Um, now, what can we say? Let's let's go back to our question: Would uh, Old Testament writers have had a trinitarian understanding of God? And I think we can say no, not formally speaking, but they would have had a sense that God can exist many ways at once. And God exists as Creator, Covenant Maker, Father, Shepherd. God also exists as Spirit. God also exists as his word and as wisdom. And then we have these these funny stories about God existing as the angel of the Lord. So, um, to use fancy philosophical language, God is capable of a pluriform existence, which, again, means multiple ways of existing at once. Um, Now, that word form that I just said, pluriform, that's a little hot key in Mm -hmm. in, in Christian theology, where it's, no, 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 form over substance. In this case, it means multiple ways of existing. So, that's just a problem with the English language, that we don't mean uh, merely multiple appearances, but we mean multiple ways of existing. So, would the ancient readers have uh, been more comfortable in this kind of um, unclear understanding mm-hmm. whereas we we want more like concrete like tell me yeah what yeah. it exactly is well and again if we think of the knowledge of god from the perspective of hebrew writers comes from the stories of god interacting with people so if you were to ask moses well you make sense and he's going i don't know what to do with this uh it started out being the angel of the lord and turned out to be god what else am i supposed to do with that you know so they would just say, I already told you. Why do you keep asking me the same story? I'll tell you the same thing. 
So, the theology of ancient Israel was built upon the witness of the people of Israel. And, and, and that is going to make it uh, more complex and more messy than simply someone like Aristotle cranking out a bunch of elegant, consistent, logically coherent ideas. Um, and stories are, are all at once more robust and more, more complicated and more messy. Yeah. So if we're talking about like the angel of the Lord and where God appears in mm-hmm. the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, I'm always kind of fascinated by the, the idea of Christophanies or like the appearance mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Jesus in mm-hmm. the Old Testament before people mm-hmm. like could say that's Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, what's your perspective on, on that? And, mm-hmm. and is Jesus showing up or is it, unclear mm-hmm. um, in all these different, we've named several of them already, but it's mm-hmm. over and over throughout the Old Testament, there seems to be like mm-hmm. a person. Let's talk about that. Um, and I want to, first of all, just kind of make sure we're talking precisely. Uh, if you mean, did the carpenter from Nazareth show up in the Old Testament? And we have to say no. Um, so, who might have? And there's a concept um, in English, is called the word without flesh. That would be the word of God before the carpenter of Nazareth. We believe that the Son has existed before all time, just as the Father, just as the Spirit. That's formal doctrine of the Trinity. The question, though, is how did the Son exist before he became flesh? And, and, and so, according to the Gospel of John, there was a change in the, in, in, in the being of the Son, and that is when he became Yeshua, Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. Um, so. Um, and again, if, you, if you're into fancy technology, it's called lagas asarkos. Lagas is word, ah, without, sarkos, flesh. So the word without flesh. Mm. Um, so again, we think about the angel of the Lord, keep that in your head. And then we have these m- mysterious places. Um, I would say the visitor to Hagar, the angel in the burning bush, the angel who wrestled with Jacob, uh, the fourth person standing with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Um, those are all places where I would say there's hints of something. Uh, it's again indicating the 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 pluriform nature of God, um, and then reading backwards from the perspective of the New Testament, those may be places that the the sun is showing up. Um, and in some ways, Christophany is an unfortunate term because it means the revealing of the Messiah. But nobody was talking about Messiah until the, the time of the exile. Um, so I would say the revealing of the sun. A um, couple other things, though. Sometimes people talk about um, um, God walking in the garden. I would say that's Yahweh. Um, I don't think that at that point there, there's a manifestation of God distinct from Yahweh, who's Yahweh. There it's just at that point before our human parents rebelled, they were able to stand before God and just, you know, you know, you know, have a soda together, goodness knows what, you know, make popcorn together. Um, and, and so at that point, it's just God. There, there's no distinction, you know, how is God showing But you're up? not saying that the sun wasn't present there. Um, is that, that would be, isn't that? No, well, when, it's interesting. Whenever you get God, you get the whole Trinity. And, right. And again, that's New Testament reflection. So by inference, we're always getting God wherever we go. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I just want to clarify that no oh. one's saying like, oh, the sun wasn't there. No, the sun was there mm-hmm. walking in the garden, but so was God the Father, God the Spirit. Mm-hmm. They're all exactly all present. Um, again, I don't know if our first parents would have acknowledged the threeness 
or if they would have experienced simply God. That we'll have to ask. Um, the other one that sometimes people talk about is Melchizedek. Now, I would say Melchizedek is not a Christophany, because usually the way he's referred to in, say, Hebrews 5-7, through 7, is that the writer of Hebrews is playing with the literature about Melchizedek, not with Melchizedek himself. So, if you look at the actual story of Melchizedek, uh, Abraham's coming home from routing uh, a bunch of the neighbors uh, who were attacking Sodom and some other um, towns, and and Lot had, had had become captive, so it was basically to rescue his, I think, nephew. Um, and as he's heading on home, he needs to give some things to the king of Sodom that he owes him. Um, but then what happens is another king kind of shows up, and this is the king from Salem, which later is Jerusalem. And this king is also a priest, um, and he fixes uh, Abraham a really good banquet, and then he blesses him, and he gives him things, and right afterwards, the king of Sodom shows up and demands things. So we have two kings. We have a king who is a giver and a king who is a taker. Which one would you rather have? But beyond that, we know nothing of Melchizedek. Um, his name literally means um, king of righteousness, and he is the king of Salem, which means peace. So you get some fun things to do with, with, with the name, king of righteousness, who holds the office of the king of peace. Again, we don't know how stylized the account is, and we know that Hebrews would often stylize their stories to make points. So whether he was literally named, you know, um, Melchizedek or Joey, um, we don't know. You know, or Harold, um, um, but we know at least for the story that there's a sense that that he is representing God's character and how He rules. Um, he really just has a bit part. Um, we don't know. You know, there's no description of his birth or death. He just shows up, does his thing, and that's the end of the story. And off we move. He's contrasted with the king of Sodom, whom we also don't know when he was born or died. So both of them don't have any information. The writer of Hebrews then takes this and works it literarily and says Christ is like the story of Melchizedek, because as literarily there's no beginning or end to that story, so Christ has no beginning or end. He is also, just like that character in that story, king of peace, king of righteousness, who is generous and provides a banquet rather than demanding his due like the king of Sodom. So it's actually a riffing off that story rather than literally was Melchizedek, Jesus showing up. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so then as we go through like the history of Israel and the church, and mm -hmm. at what point, well, I guess you've kind of already answered, like they they wouldn't have ever had an understanding of, of God as Trinity. Right. Where then in the history of the church would that have started of, mm -hmm. about putting this doctrine mm -hmm. together or identifying this as mm -hmm. who God is? Well, this is interesting. The formal doctrine of, of, of the Trinity in Christianity is actually a byproduct of trying to figure out who Jesus was. Okay, so let's think about Jesus. He's is this young rabbi in his early 30s. Uh, he's running around doing all these miracles, so he's clearly a prophet, and, 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 and a prophet would have the Spirit of God on him, so every, that's the first category you'd make sense of Jesus. Uh, but then he starts doing things that only God should be doing, like forgiving sins. So now he's functioning like the presence of God in the temple. This, of course, highly offends the Pharisees. 
I don't know if his disciples even knew what to do with it, other than he was also performing miracles, so they just thought it was part of the package. Um, and, but then it gets very weird where Jesus will pray to God and claim to be that same God. And that's the point where I'm sure the disciples got a little nervous, because now he's treading into territory where he could be brought up on religious charges of blasphemy and be executed. Um, uh, and again, it, it, as one Old Testament commentator put it, um, there's actually no law in the Old Testament that makes it a crime to claim to be God. But there is a law uh, that makes it illegal to to lie about it. And of course, the Pharisees think he's lying. Um, but again, he, he is saying some contradictory things. How do you pray to God and claim to be the God you're praying to? So that's bizarre. And I think you can tell that discomfort across the Gospels, even with Jesus' disciples. Well, then he's crucified, and part of why he's crucified is his self-claim to being that God. And then, you know, I'm imagining the disciples think everything's over, um, and then they wonder themselves whether Jesus, you know, if, if he was a little crazy, perhaps. And then three days later, he shows up. Oh my goodness, now we have to take all his claims very seriously, including the ones that make us feel awkward. So what are we going to do with Jesus, especially the risen Jesus? You know, because now all his claims are vindicated. So now we have to make sense of the fact that he prays to God and claims to be that very God. Well, now we go back as good Jews to everything we know about Yahweh in the Old Testament. And we've got those three buckets. Well, so we know about bucket number one, and we know Jesus isn't bucket number one because that's who he prays to, the Father. We know about bucket number two, and we know Jesus doesn't belong in bucket number two because he will send his spirit, or he will talk about the spirit of the Father. And, and, and so, the only thing left is bucket number three, which is the word of God and the wisdom of God. And we believe that um, that's where he lands because that's where the Old Testament says he lands. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Paul refers to Jesus or Christ, the Messiah, that's Jesus' you know, job description, as the wisdom of God. So then as good Jews, they put Jesus in bucket number three, and then they made sense of the contradiction, most likely by using categories derived from the stories about the angel of the Lord. So the, the, the tools were already in Judaism to make sense of Jesus, and they were applied to him. And as a result, now we have Jesus throwing, showing up in roughly three ways. Not Jesus, God. So God shows up as Father. And then all those others, God shows up as, as, as spirit, and then God shows up as son. Um, and, and, um, and so the byproduct is a threeness um, that was kind of latent in the Old Testament. Um, and again, remember that no one's asking questions of how, because Jews don't care about how, they care about who and why. Uh, Jews are about, it's a relational story-based culture that focuses on, on who, and then also the narrative and the meaning of the narrative. Um, leave it to later Christians to start getting picky about the mechanics of the Trinity. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty well how it all happened, is they were scratching their heads saying, who is this mass man? And in the process, they, they put him in bucket three, and you begin to have the emerging of uh, the formulations in Scripture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and they're very early. They show up probably around 50 AD, if not earlier. What do you mean they show up? They show up like in the in the the writings, the the yeah. New Testament, mm -hmm. because it, it never 
the Trinity isn't named. It's it's more a a, a, a doctrine of um, it's it's what we see there rather than expi- mm-hmm. explicitly said like hey. Yeah, God is exactly. Trinity, right? So, mm-hmm. help us understand that process of mm-hmm. of um, getting to that doctrine. Like, when when was that a mm-hmm. normal thing in all of the church that yeah. everyone mm-hmm. was like, "Hey, we 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 know yeah. the word Trinity and that God is mm-hmm. a Trinity." Um, how's that come to be? Once the once they've all understood it, and now have to communicate it. Yep. Um, I would say the first place that we start seeing the threeness is in the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Because Lord is the word that's used in the Greek Old Testament for Yahweh. So every time you see Lord Jesus, um, and, and again, if you're not a Christian, it could be argued that that just simply means Mr. Jesus, because Lord in Greek could also mean Mr. Um, but the phrase, when they say, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, um, there's no way to avoid that they're using the Greek equivalent, kudios, for Yahweh, because that's that's how the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, translated Yahweh in every instance with kudios. So, um, and, and so that's the first thing. So at this point, Jesus is now equated with God himself, but Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, so we have a sense of distinctness. And then we've already, in the book of Acts, seen how we talk about the Spirit of God coming on people. So we have the awareness of the three, then you start seeing these, these formulas that Paul starts echoing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit being with you all. Usually those are at the end of his, his letters. So there's the God spoken of as three different ways. And then... Most blatantly is Matthew 28, and this is going to be after Paul. Uh, the Gospels are later than the, uh, the, the letters of Paul. And he says, go, uh, you know, all authority has been given to me, uh, which is another way of saying, I am God. <laughs> That's coming straight from Daniel 7. Uh, and it says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. And this is, this is an innovation because now it's not just authority in heaven, but it's authority in earth. Um, in other words, that got split in Genesis 3, and Jesus pulls it together and says, I am the king of both realms now. Um, and then it says, therefore, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the most blatant three-in-one we get in Scripture, um, You know, where, where Jesus claims that he's God, and then he says, in the name of God, and then he says, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, we get some other stuff that's a little less direct in John 14, 15, 16, where he talks about sending, he talks about my I and the Father will make our home in you, or I and the Father are one, um, or and I will send my spirit. And he talks about then this, this the, and the spirit of the Father. And we get some more detail where uh, later in formulations we'll talk about the Holy Spirit coming both from the Father and the Son. Um, again, it's interesting because that's confusing, but yet it's what Jesus said. So we're just saying, ask the boss, you know. <laughs> So, you know, and, and, and then, of course, we have later people trying to, to unpack it. So, that's the first time. And then what happens is that becomes a formulation. So, when early Christians start talking about God, they start talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go into about 150, I think it's Irenaeus talks about praying in the name of, was it, praying to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so... Um, you you get that formulation of to the Father, by the Son, um, through the Holy Spirit. Um, 
and and so once again, there's a sense of 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 you're you're communicating with a God who exists um, in threeness. Where I'm just going to keep it super basic right now. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, as we become more and more of a Gentile movement, then we're now into Greek culture, which always asks how, or Western culture is what we call it now. And so then there's a lot of head scratching. And that starts producing creeds. Um, you have the Apostles' Creed, which doesn't really do much other than say, I believe in God, and then just delineates the three ways God shows up, but doesn't deal with the mechanics much. Then we get the Nicene Creed that starts dealing with the mechanics, especially Jesus. Uh, Father and, and Spirit, they don't need to worry too much about because those are already strong Old Testament concepts. But what do we do with Jesus? So he becomes, you know, God from God, light from light, true God. Um, you know, true God uh, was it begotten, not made. So there is a relationship like father and son, but he was not, there was no time when the son was not, you know, and then it goes into the story who for us and our salvation. But there's that whole section where they're trying to very carefully define Jesus as God, but distinct from the father. And then there's this huge formulation called the Anast. Athanasian Creed, where it goes into some very obscure formulations, and you can tell there's a fight behind it, because after it says things that nobody can understand, and it says, and if you don't believe this, you're going to hell. And you're like, Mm. whoa, I don't even know what I'm supposed to believe. This is too complicated for me. Um, And there's some big fights of how you talk about it. This is where we get into form over substance. And, you know, where, and this is tricky because the word form is used in Philippians 2 to talk about Jesus. But Paul clearly doesn't mean that Jesus is, a, is like God. Um, and then they try to nail it down several centuries later where they discard the term form because it has too many liabilities. And they start using words like substance. Um, and so God exists in, simultaneously in three levels of subsistence. And and the word for subsistence, subsistence, say that fast ten times. I mean, we don't even use that in everyday speech. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know how you know how's yeah. your subsistence today? Um, but it was a big, big word. It, it provoked fights if you used it. You know, in other words, God. And so, a subsistence in, in Greek was hypostasis, and and that word showed up. And 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 so God existed in three hypostases, and you didn't say three forms, or else then you know, in fact. Fights over the Trinity were so big that uh, St. Augustine got thrown in jail for punching a guy named Arius in the mouth over talking about how you should say Je- talk about Jesus. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, so fisticuffs, who yeah. knew it? <laughs> so these creeds, mm-hmm. um, were they, first of all, as far as a, a time frame, these are mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. couple hundred years after after the resurrection? Yeah. Um, the, the Apostles' Creed is probably somewhere between 150 to 200. Okay. Athanasian Creed came after Constantine um, declared the church to be the official like imperial three, religion. 325-ish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's after the Edict of Milan. Um, and then the Athanasian Creed, I think, is 6th or 7th century. Okay. So was there something... I, I mean, is it, is it partially because it's becoming uh, there's more and more Gentiles involved that um, how comfortable we were with the um, you know the unknown is it, or is it something in the culture that required them to be like okay we got to figure this out so that we can communicate it better mm-hmm. and so that people understand the the how mm-hmm. like you were talking about like yeah. the the ancient Jews were 
fine with not knowing that. Yeah. And and now the shift is, are you saying it's primarily the, the Gentile influence or the influence of culture that required, okay, well now we got to like get it down so that everyone is on the same page? Or is it the size of the church so they could have some consistency about like, hey, this is what mm-hmm. this is what it means to be a Christian? I would say it's all of the above. Let me see if I can pull that apart. Okay. The first reason we deal with the how is because, well, um, Greco-Roman culture was a how-oriented culture, and like good missionaries, you know, the Apostle Paul was already doing this in the book of Acts, was beginning to, how do you make sense of Jesus to people who are not Jewish? You know, how do you introduce them to Jesus if they don't know the story? And and and, and there's two things. One, which is... Uh, you know, a good thing, you're, you're going to other cultures. That's what Jesus commanded, right? Go, go talk to the Greeks, go talk to the Romans, you know, go talk to everybody else. So you need to, to frame the good news of Jesus in a way they're going to get it um, because they don't know the stories of, of the Exodus. That having been said, um, the bad thing was that once they became believers, nobody taught them the stories. So by 300 AD, most Christians did not know the story of Jesus or the story of the Exodus. You know, they would not have known how to read the Old Testament, much less having even read it. They would have known the story of Jesus. Right? Oh, yeah, the story of Jesus. But yeah, they, they wouldn't have known the Old Testament. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Yep. And um, so N.T. Wright says you get in this awkward position where Jesus becomes the climax to a story that nobody knows. You know, where you know, and and so he starts morphing in kind of bad ways. He starts looking strangely like a Greco-Roman god, because that would have been the only way they would have had to understand him. So at that point, they're saying, "Oh, we got to fix this." So at that point, they're trying to nail down just exactly who he was in relationship. Now, there are some ways doing it in a vacuum because they're trying to describe God in a way that's foreign to the way God was described to his original people. And they're borrowing heavily from Greek philosophy. That's why um, you know, Aristotle, Plato, um, Heraclitus, you, you name it. So they're using Greek categories to make sense of a Jewish God. And sometimes it gets a little goofy because, uh, again, you can talk about the angel of the Lord in stories. How on earth do you describe that as, as, as a coherent concept? It's almost like the idea of um, different types of learning mm-hmm. that people have. You know, yeah, yeah. everyone learns differently, but mm-hmm. um, I th- learning through experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is often much more powerful than learning by just someone telling you the answer. Exactly, and it's almost like if I'm getting at this right, the the ancient Jews, even though it was over hundreds and thousands of years, mm-hmm. they experienced this story. And knew God as a result, mm-hmm. whereas these newer Gentiles who hadn't had the experience were just told about God, and they were trying to fit it into their experiences, mm-hmm. which were not the experiences of ancient Israel. Exactly. And then, of course, they have thought categories that we would call cosmologies. In other words, uh, ancient Israel had one kind of cosmology, and it was story-based, um, and it was shared by other ancient Middle Eastern cultures as well, um, where the Greco-Roman world had a different cosmology, and it was not story-based. Um, it was based more in ideas and concepts. And so, that yeah, there's some massive gear shifting that the Christian church had to do to effectively evangelize non, uh, non, non-Jewish culture. 
And um, and this is the, the this is the risk with any missionary endeavor. And of course, it's clearly worth the risk, and Christ commands it. So we have to be careful not to talk about it like it's a catastrophe, but just know that certain challenges arose. Um, and and one of them was how do you talk about God if you don't know the story of God? You know, and you're in a non-storied culture. Um, so and and that's where we get. Um, I mean, at that point, we get into this very interesting situation where. Um, the major teachers of the church have to start explaining God in Greco-Roman terms. So one is, how do you talk about God as mutual servant if you don't have the stories? Well, then you talk about God or the Trinity as perichoresis. And this is basically the, the procession of mutual service or mutual love, sometimes called the dance of mutual love. Um, and and peri means around and choresis means turning. Um, and literally where the Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit, loves the Father, loves the Son, and, and also across the ways where the Spirit loves the Father, Son, and and on and on and on. And they also mutually serve each other and mutually surrender to each other. Um, and again, that's a way of talking about what everybody experienced in the Old Testament. Also, what the first disciples experienced with Jesus, where he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Or when he washed feet, as, as we start learning that that God is the one who who serves, and how do you make sense of that in the Trinity? Uh, Augustine talked about the psychological Trinity, which to this day for me is a bit complicated, but it basically, if I use Freudian terms, it would be, um, well, he I think he would talk about the, the the thinking self, the remembering self, and the deciding self, and so he was trying to talk about three different ways we ourselves. I don't think it quite works. Um, one is I have a hard time keeping it in my head, and good examples you can keep in your head. Um, then there's the economic and imminent trinity. Um, the, the imminent trinity is how God shows up to the world. The economic trinity is the inner life of God. The perichoresis would be a description of the economic trinity. Um, and then there's the uh, processional trinity, which is Eastern Orthodox. Um, which is the Father speaks the word by the power of the Spirit. And so instead of it being a circle, um, it's actually a line. Um, it's simpler. It avoids some of the problems of, of the circle ways of understanding it, and it creates others, which, again, this is the problem when you walk away from the, from the stories is you can only approximate the complexity of the stories. Mm -hmm. And you start creating ditches that the stories don't create. Um and that leads, you know, and that leads us to heresies and stuff like that. Yeah, and and so kind of going down that route a little mm -hmm. bit. I think we've all heard different analogies made in our modern mm -hmm. our yeah. modern world mm -hmm. to make sense of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've heard about the water mm -hmm. vapor, ice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's all it, it, three different um, states. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the three-leaf clover, the, you mm -hmm. know, a person can be a dad, son, a husband all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Is there an analogy that you can think of that's a good one? Because, you know, analogies break down at some point, just like mm -hmm. you were saying, mm -hmm. like it, yeah. it, it creates issues that the story doesn't, doesn't yeah. have. Um, is there a good one? Well, uh, I'm not sure, but I want to take the three that you just talked about and, and, and talk about why they're challenging. Because people use them. And, and, you know, if you're going really fast, they kind of work, but not really. Like water, vapor, and ice are three different states of H2O. But 
water vapor and ice can't be the same thing all at once. So in that way, it's either water or vapor or ice. And that's a problem because the Trinity is simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists three ways at once. Uh, and so the heresy that's called is modalism. Um, and there are some churches that hold to that, where in the beginning there was the Father, then he became Jesus, and now he's the Spirit. And then at the end of time, he will become the, become the Son again. Um, again, I don't think that conforms to the witness of Scripture. And that's where the word forms that you were talking about earlier yeah, mm -hmm. comes into play, right? Yeah. Okay. And then three-leaf clover, the problem with that is each leaf is not all of the clover. It's a part of the clover. And so that's a bit of a heresy because you're not really talking about threeness. It only looks threeness. It isn't. And then it's similar with dad, son, and husband. Those are three roles, but those are not three ways you exist. You're still talking about one person. So it's very hard to talk about threeness and oneness all at once. A more modern problem was about 20 years ago, there was a move to abandon using the phrase Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At that point, people were discovering that often father was used in Western culture to indicate uh, a, you know, a brutal dictator who'll do what, you better do what he says. For example, during the time of the Kaisers in Germany, the phrase the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man was literally um, legitimating, legitimating the Kaiser's dictatorship in his army. So the brotherhood of man was the brotherhood of the army, the male army. And the father of God, well, like the Kaiser is father, so is Godfather. So, you, you know, in other words, behavior, you're dead. And then again, what we call male patriarchy. So the attempt was to say, let's, instead of saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's say Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Uh, and that comes from Luther, because Luther would typically talk about God, the Father as Creator, God the Son as Redeemer, because Jesus is the one who was on the cross. And, and God the Spirit is the one who sanctifies. You find that um, in the small catechism, and, the, and Lutherans thought, well, that'll work. The only problem is some pesky theologian pointed out that actually the entire Trinity is involved in creation, the entire Trinity is involved in redemption, and the entire Trinity is involved in sanctification. <laughs> so you, so that, that creator, redeemer, and sanctifier was not a Trinitarian phrase. As someone said, it's more about the divine job description. Um, so that's what happens when we start messing around with the primal words. Even if there seems to be good reasons to change things, those, those words come out of story. For example, the word father in the Old Testament is almost used exclusively in nurturing terms. So if you look at father in the Old Testament, what you get is Mr. Mom, you know, and, 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 and it's often in, in contrast to the brutal deities that other religions worshipped, such as Moloch, who required, the, who, wanted, who required being fed with children. Um, so... Um, so that is the problem. And so here, here's a few of them. We talked about modalism. That's God can only act as one person at a time. Arianism claims that Jesus was like God, but wasn't God himself. And they actually, there's a, a huge term for that. That's the, the homoousius, homoousius controversy. Don't worry. If you try to repeat that, you'll hurt yourself and others. Yeah. Um, homoousius means that, that Jesus was the same substance as God. Homoousius means that he was similar substance. Arius claimed that Jesus was similar substance, and so that's what's called Arianism. Modern-day group that claims that Jesus is similar substance but not God himself would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Many on the left end of mainline Protestantism also claim that Jesus 
was not God himself. And they range from just Jesus being a good teacher to Jesus being adopted by God at his baptism. We call that adoptionism. It's a form of Arianism. Um, and so you get that. And then you, on the other extreme, and often evangelicals will fall into this, and that's docetism, which in its, in its bare form denies the humanity of Jesus, that he was only divine. We find this in, in various Gnostic forms of Christianity, the Gospel of Thomas, at the crucifixion, God the Son leaves the body of Jesus and laughs at him while the body of Jesus dies a painful death. Um, and a lot of that comes from the Greek concept that finity and infinity cannot coexist at the same time. They're, they're descriptions of opposites, just in, in, you know, like logic, A is not not A. And, and so that's usually where homoousius or Arianism comes in, is, is you can't have something simultaneously divine and not divine. Um, and again, that's where stories have power. And then docetism is the flip side, where you claim Jesus was only divine. Um, you often find that in, in, in a conservative American Christianity, where when I teach about the cross, I'll often talk about how God died. And people in our congregation who come from evangelical background are often very uncomfortable with it. You mean Jesus died? Yes, he's God. God died. Well, yes, but Jesus died. And so there's this great discomfort with the infinite one being killed. And that's where docetism comes in, is trying to solve that problem. Um, and then Nestorianism is, is almost like modalism, where Jesus has two different identities of human and divine, but it can only be one at a time, or there's a strong distinction. Um, if you look at Calvinist and Lutheran understandings of Christ, Calvinist or the Reformed tradition accuses the Lutheran tradition of commingling the natures of Jesus. In other words, that we believe that God was simul that Jesus was simultaneously completely God and completely human, and to which the Reformed tradition says that's illogical. And so they make a great distinction between the divine or the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. They don't commingle; they are separate. And that, while not being completely an historian, heads there, in my opinion. You know, where, um, and, and again, I, I don't think there's a word for what they would call the Lutheran heresy, which is the commingling of natures, other than that phrase. And of course, we say darn right. <laughs> in other words, when you, in Jesus, God is the carpenter from Nazareth. You know, in Jesus, God, you know, he pooped his pampers. In Jesus, he needed a mom to keep him alive. You know, that's why the Roman Catholics can accurately call Jesus Mater Dei, the mother of God, not just the mother of Jesus. Now, is she superior to God? Nope. Um, you know, again, that's that's probably the Protestant talking in me. But she is God's mom, if, if we take Jesus seriously. Um, then we've got subordinationalism, and this comes from the processional trinity, where the Father speaks the word by the power of the Son, and this is where the, the Son and the Spirit are less than the Father, because they proceed from the Father. And then, obviously, partialism is God is only um, truly God when all three are combined. That's the cloverleaf one, where Jesus is only a leaf of God. You know, the Spirit is only a leaf of God. The Father is only a leaf of God. But, but you have, you know, and but we believe that in the Spirit is all God, the Son is all God, and and the Father is all God. Mm -hmm. um, so, kind of to sum it up, uh, the heresies from the West often devolve into polytheism. In fact, if you were to ask most American Christians to describe the Trinity, they would probably describe three gods. They might say three and one, but then as they start detailing that out, they drift over to, to polytheism, 
Where in the East, they, they drift over to subordinationalism because in order to hold everything together, everything originates from the Father. And, and, and again, um, we're, we're not talking about, oh, these are heretics, burn them, you know, cast them into outer darkness. We will have no fellowship with those who disagree with us. That's grumpy, and that's a heresy too. Um, this is more just observing that a try as we might, apart from the stories of God, we're always going to approximate what the stories tell us, and there will always be ditches in the road we will trend towards. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if you, it's like if we try to make sense of mm-hmm. the Almighty God mm-hmm. in like mm-hmm. very our simple ways, yeah, we're gonna we're we're gonna miss out on something somewhere, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that almost makes God like almost makes it more believable because if you if you mm-hmm. had a right if you had a God who was completely you could explain every little de- mm-hmm. you know, then is it is it really all that, you know, you can't oversimplify it. Like he's, he's mm-hmm. that big and powerful and great and all these mm-hmm. things. And if we're just trying to make it into a little analogy, maybe we, that's oversimplifying it a little bit. Well, here's, what's very, very interesting. Um, in a lot of ways, a way to summarize what you said, God is mystery. Mm-hmm. is God is a person. I mean, if you think of, of, of your wife, um, you know, you can't explain anybody, not even your spouse. You, they are the sum of their behaviors, right? Right. In other words, you make sense of her because of the she's the sum of all of her stories with you. Mm-hmm. You know, so so actually, the storied world never we never escape a storied world because you know, and and you know, sometimes we'll say that's not like you, which means that doesn't fit all the stories. Yeah. You know, and that's not like God. Well, how do you know that? Because of the stories that do, that doesn't seem to be consistent with the stories. Yeah. And and so we call that's when people surprise us. Now what happens is we incorporate that into the stories, you know. So oh, now we our view of God is larger. He did something unexpected, you know, and and it keeps enlarging because uh, from the unfolding stories that get re- recorded. Likewise, in a marriage relationship, all the unfolding stories of the marriage. Um, the other is there are some concepts in human experience that get into pluriformity. For example, what I'd call self-talk or internal dialogue. Um, you know, we, we, we all at one time or another talk to ourselves. And, and what cu- keeps us from having multiple personality disorder is we know it's still our self-talking to ourselves. But there is a sense where we become distinct from ourselves in our internal dialogue. Often psychologists will work with clients to avoid negative self-talk and turn it into encouraging self-talk. But the point is, the assumption is we're talking to ourselves. So that's another way that humans bearing the image of God are in certain ways pluriform. Hmm. Now, you know, that's just, again, scratching the surface because we're just using human experience as analogy to the life of God. So once again, there probably are ditches and all that. So we, we just, we use those very humbly like God is like, not God is. Yeah. You know. So how would you recommend to modern Christians if, if, you know, we've got the the creeds and even the early Christians mm-hmm. in the first hundred, couple hundred years mm-hmm. were trying to put pen to paper and explain the Trinity, mm-hmm. but you can't explain it too much or it, it mm-hmm. falls into these heresies. Yep. Mm-hmm. How do you, maybe how do you personally, but how would you also recommend to a modern Christian to um, engage with the idea of the Trinity? 
I would read the Gospels, all four of them, and, and, and ask yourself, how do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John see Jesus? And, and not only just the narratives, but as the writers who are really good at writing, how are they wanting to approach, portray Jesus to the reader, and what literary devices do they use to do it? Also, how do they, what do they point back to in the Old Testament to help them make sense of Jesus, and then go read that? You know, for example, Jesus says in John, before Abraham was, I am. Well, that clearly goes right back to Exodus 1, or 2, excuse me, where the burning bush is. You know, who shall I say sent me? I am. There's Jesus making a claim. Okay, Jesus thinks he's God. And again, you can think that way because we don't say Jesus is God until the resurrection. Up until then, the best observation we can make is Jesus thinks he's God. There's no proof for that other than the resurrection vindicates it. Um, you know, and, and so then the other would be the Apostle Paul's usage of names for God and how he works them, how he thinks of Jesus, how he thinks of the Spirit, how he thinks of the Father. And then I would say also Revelation, which, if not written by John, was written by someone in John's community, a disciple, for example, because, he, because Revelation echoes a good boatload of the themes found in the Gospel of John. So just working the literature— um, and notice I'm not talking, I'm not suggesting you go read the Greeks, you know, all the creeds yet, because those are actually based, the, the New Testament's the primary source. Um, now, you'll notice that the New Testament is not interested in making a tidy doctrine of the Trinity. They're interested in figuring out who Jesus is. And, and so you're going to get Jewish ways of thinking. So even in the New Testament, while Paul especially, and I would say Luke, are aware of their Gentile audience, they're trying to communicate to those Gentiles Jewish categories. In other words, they're trying to introduce Gentiles to the storied world of Israel. And so you get kind of this hybrid of some Greek categories, but it's an attempt to translate the Jewish thought categories. They're not operating completely into Greek categories until we get into, you know, this, beyond the second century. So that's why I'm not that much interested in, in heavy Trinitarian theology to get you immersed. I'd rather have you reading the Gospels and the Epistles and even Revelation. Um, I don't know, if, is that a little bit helpful? Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, th this just came to mind. If, if um, There's two videos that I would recommend people, people check out that are um, talk about the Trinity mm -hmm. and the, the, the different ditches or the different heresies. Mm -hmm. The first one is from Lutheran Satire on YouTube mm -hmm. um, with Donald and Connell. It's called uh, St. Patrick's Bad Analogies, I think. Uh -huh. uh, and the second one was made by Pastor Murph at Hope Crimes. Oh, cool. Um, and he did one, I think it was during the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, on the Trinity. It's on the Hope Grimes uh, YouTube channel, mm -hmm. where he does a really cool one on, he has like three or four of himself explaining mm -hmm. the the, yeah. the different different ditches. So, um, would you say then, I don't want to say that we don't need the Trinity because mm -hmm. obviously we need, we need God who is Trinity, but the, the understanding, but do we need to be more, um, okay with messiness and not, not a lot of, um, clarity around that and just allowing the story from the Bible to, help us understand who God is, rather than trying to nail it down. Does that make sense? I'd say yes with qualifications. Um, I would say, and, and again, the creeds are not Holy Scripture, but they're darn close to it. 
In other words, I think it's a consensus throughout history that the Spirit was involved with the church leaders who put together the creeds. Um, and, and so often, almost all Christian church bodies, if you are a pastor, part of what you do is is you affirm in, in your oath at ordination that the creeds are accurate expo- expositions of Scripture. So, when I would say that, I still would not start with the creeds because you need to know what they're summarizing. Mm-hmm. So, the creeds uh, are summaries of, of, of Scripture. So, that's why I say start with Scripture. If you start with the creeds, you're going to get a distorted view of the Trinity because you don't know what they're summarizing. Uh, the other would be, if, especially if you're a history nerd, is each one of the creeds is addressing a controversy. There's a fight going on behind them. Um, and so, for example, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, the big fight is over who's Jesus. There's not much of a fight over who the Father is and who the Spirit is, but there's a big fight with both creeds of who Jesus is, and that's why um, the lion's share of the creed is devoted to the identity of Jesus. Um, those fights will help you understand why the creeds say what they do and what they're trying to avoid and what they're trying to emphasize. Um, so, the Bible is the primary source, the foundation, to make sense of it all. And, of course, the New Testament sits on the foundation of the Old. Um, and then the, the later creeds are summaries. Uh, and the earliest creed is Jesus is Lord. Um, that's the first creed we have, just that little sentence. And Paul just pushes that one. And, and so you see it also showing up in, in the book of Acts. Um, and then from there, you start seeing formulations that include Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or God, Son, Holy Spirit, where God is implied as Father. Um, and then you start getting summaries, which then we would call the creeds. Okay. So almost not not uh, try to avoid the third of adding a third, as in the analogies, mm-hmm. the modern analogies, because then it, it, you know, they it, they break down at some point. Yeah, they do. But at the same time, for what they do, they're faithful. Mm. Okay. So, in other words, they're not, you know, absolutely comprehensive when it comes to talking about the Trinity. And that's where we get in trouble when we assume that the creeds, the creeds are comprehensive explanations of the Trinity, where they're faithful summaries of the New Testament witness and Old Testament witness to the being of God. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a difference between faithful and absolutely comprehensive. Okay. In other words, they do their job. Yeah. And you're talking about the the, the creeds as being faithful, doing their job, not mm-hmm. not these analogies we've talked about. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, cool. Anything else you'd want to you'd want people to know about the Trinity? Anything that we missed that you think uh, is important to discuss before we wrap things up? Um, if I were to say the most important thing to take away with is. Again, that there that the, the Trinity is a doctrine that is a faithful summary of the story of God as reflected both in Old and New Testament, with an emphasis on the identity of Jesus. All right, I think that's a good place to end. One last thing before we go, uh, we're going to be doing a Q and R episode, so a question and response episode here in a few weeks. Uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Richard um, on one of the topics topics that we've discussed so far. Please email me directly. Uh, my email is eric.payton at hopewdm.org. That's E-R-I-C dot P-E-Y-T-O-N. Uh, and you can include the subject word with web. That would help me uh, 
uh, organize those. Um, and also, if you have any ideas for a future topic you'd like to be discussed on the show, you can uh, send those in the same way. So we look forward to hearing from you all and, and talking next time. <laughs>